Hello and welcome to Health in a Handbasket, your podcast about the sexy world of healthcare engineering. I'm Fidu Sakta and I'll be your host. I'm the Marketing and Community Manager at UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering. And although I don't always understand what's written in the research papers published by our academics, I know that what we're doing in the world of healthcare engineering is important and impactful. And I want to share that with you by speaking to those who know a bit more about it than me. From today's handbasket, we're picking out the topic of racism in healthcare. It's a heavy topic, and as a brown woman, I, of course, have a vested interest. You might be thinking, racism in healthcare? Does it even exist? We're brought up to believe that healthcare and the NHS is there for us when we need it, which it is, but there seems to be caveats to how effective the treatment is depending on the colour of your skin, and that's something we're going to be exploring today. I'm here with Shoba Podival. Hi, Shoba. Hi. Uh, she's a GP and a lecturer at UCL's eHealth unit, which exists to help people get better through digital health promotion and disease management programs. We'll get into the work she does to help people get digitally savvy, but more on that later. So, hi, Shoba. Hi, Fiduce. How are you? Hi. I'm good. Let's start with the issue. What problem are we facing in healthcare? The issue that I'm looking at at the moment is to do with inequalities in health in people who are from ethnic minority backgrounds and digging deeper into what is causing those inequalities, in particular the issue of racism. So the experience of racism and how that impacts on health. It's a big issue. So where did your passion for this come from? So I started researching this topic actually due to a policy secondment that I've been doing Mm. since December. I've just finished actually working with the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities in London, which is an office which is part of the Department of Health. And they've been working with a number of different agencies, including the Greater London Authority, um, the NHS, obviously, um, and a number of other organisations to try and tackle this problem of racism in healthcare. And this has all come about really as, as a result of COVID and how that highlighted the issue with disparities in health between the white population and ethnic minority populations. So we know that COVID outcomes were particularly poor. For people from ethnic minority backgrounds, mortality and morbidity were worse for people from ethnic minority backgrounds during COVID. And that really brought this issue to the forefront, even though we've known for a long time, over 20, 30 years, there's been data to show that health outcomes in ethnic minority communities are worse. COVID and a number of other kind of social issues, you know, the Black Mm. Lives Matter movement um, has brought it to the forefront as well. And I think we're now in an era where people are kind of finally ready to talk about this issue and also aware that we need to start acting on the issue rather than talking about it and understanding the issue we need to do something about it as well. So you mentioned you worked for the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities. Why do you think we need anti-racist policies in healthcare then? So I think the reason why we need to specifically look at anti-racism is that That's the perspective we need to take if we really want to tackle this problem. A a sort of softly, softly approach where we kind of make small changes to the way we provide services probably isn't going to be as effective. Mm. We really need to understand what people's experiences of racism in healthcare are and take an anti-racist approach to that, which means really kind of understanding the perspective of the service user and their experience, their experiences of trauma or the bad experiences of healthcare tailoring the services that we're offering 
to meet the needs of that service user and their community and, and, and that population. So it's much more than just being culturally tailored, which, you know, that kind of term comes up a lot in, in research on ethnic minority health. What it's do you about, mean by culturally tailored? Like? So uh, culturally tailored means understanding the culture of the person that you're um, looking after, which is really important because culture can affect so many health behaviours and so mm. many health attitudes and so much health knowledge. So if we take, for example, diabetes, so much of that is dependent on the diet that you eat mm. and so and that your diet is dependent on the culture that you come from. So I think taking an anti-racist approach is a step further than that, where mm. not only are we, we understanding the culture, but we're understanding adverse experiences and adverse processes, context that people are having to go through. So we're talking about socioeconomics as well. Mm. What are the kind of life challenges that people have had to go through which have adversely impacted their health as well? So we know that things like education, employment, income, all of those things affect your health. And ethnic minority communities are more likely to have adverse experiences of those things as well. So there's a lot of interconnection between all those different factors and taking an anti-racist approach is about incorporating all of those different aspects in the way that you care for people. So I guess that's why it's important the government gets involved because yes. it's such a huge issue in terms of like education, yeah. socioeconomics, all of that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So in public health, we talk about kind of upstream versus downstream responses and interventions. And this is definitely one area where we need both of those things happening. So mm. as well as, uh, you know, my focus is on healthcare and health services and how we can improve those and take an anti-racist approach to those things. But equally, and maybe even more importantly, we need the social and economic policy mm. that's going to improve people's life chances so that those things don't negatively impact their health as well. Mm. What are some of the specific issues we're facing then? So some of the starkest inequalities that we're seeing are in things like maternity care, where we now know that black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth than That's white women. A huge number. Yeah, it's really shocking. From childbirth, um, something that's meant to be like, you know, you go into the hospital and you come out with a baby. Yeah, <laughs> and also not. something that's supposed to be a really kind of happy time yeah. of celebration. And it is for so many women. But what... And as a mother, this really affects me too. What I think brown and black women now have to contend with is not only, you know, all, all the feelings that come along with pregnancy, but also knowing that fact and knowing that you're more likely to have an adverse yeah. outcome and to even die through, you know, something that should be a really normal part of life, I think is really terrifying. It's like you think twice before you go in, right? Yeah, I think, I think it's just a huge wake up call for a lot of people mm. and it should be particularly to maternity services, which we know in the UK at the moment is massively under-resourced and, and mm. there's huge issues there. Um, but I think this is one of the really, really important issues that that we need to deal with as a priority. And then there's a, the way um, that black women or, or women from minority ethnic cultures and backgrounds are treated is different to the way that white women mm. are treated. And that might perhaps be because healthcare staff are less used to dealing with women from ethnic minority backgrounds or don't understand the culture as well or due to you know implicit bias mm. so um biases that that we have in our subconscious that we allow to make decisions for us but actually are, are putting people at higher risk than others so i mean that's one of the things that we we kind of looked at as part of my um, research with the office for health improvement and disparities is around 
the workforce and making sure that the healthcare workforce reflects the mm. the patient population that we're seeing. So making sure it's diverse and there's um, people from different cultures working within the NHS mm. workforce and also making sure that we provide cultural diversity training. So providing training to the workforce, both white and, and non-white, about different cultures and treating people from different cultures and 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 you know the right ways and the best ways of doing that to avoid bias and to avoid mm. treating people um, differently. So those are some really important interventions that are already happening. You know, a number of trusts and and, and um, care institutions are already doing this, but it needs to become more widespread and just a normal part of NHS culture as well. Mm. And what are some of the other issues we're facing? Some of the other important issues are in mental health. So we know that black men in particular have poorer outcomes from mental health problems, are more likely to be admitted to hospital. And that could be for a number of reasons. They can present to health services later. And that might be due to problems with stigma around talking about mental health or seeking help for mental health problems. It can also be not just within the black community, within the Asian community as well. It can be different ideas around how mental health problems should be treated, when to seek help, what kind of help to seek, and also problems with the way that ethnic minority communities are treated within healthcare. So we know that, again, mental health is another area within healthcare which is massively under-resourced, and we don't have, um, so I talked about culturally tailoring previously, we don't have those kind of culturally Mm. tailored mental health services. So, for example, in my own practice as a GP, when I'm referring patients from, for example, a Turkish background or Bangladeshi background to counselling, I always try and find local organisations, which are, for example, Turkish women's organisations who have dedicated counsellors who come from the same background, mm. from that community, because I know that that patient's going to have much better, a much better experience, much better outcomes from talking to someone mm. within their community who understands the culture and the ways that even the simple things like the language, the words that you use to describe mm-hmm. your feelings are different in one culture versus another. We did a, a student project on this recently. We did a systematic review looking at how South Asian women present to primary care and the language that they use just to describe how they're feeling is completely different and they might use Mm. language to describe how they feel in a physical way but what they actually mean is it's a mental health issue but they don't have the language Mm. to to describe how they're feeling mentally and emotionally and that takes a lot of experience both as a clinician and a sensitivity to the communities that you're working with and I've been doing this for long enough that I can kind of do that now but I think it's really important that we highlight those issues and that we provide the right training for clinicians and provide the right services also so that we can deal with those problems adequately. Mm. That's super interesting about language because I'm Bangladeshi and in my, like you said, in my culture, I don't think we've ever talked about mental health. I, when I think about my, uh, about my mother tongue, I can't think of a way to say I I'm mentally going through something because I don't think the words exist. The issues might exist, but then again, like people don't think about mental health in that way. It's kind of like brushed under the carpet or it's seen as like, I don't know, uh, some Islamic jinn or something like that, which is, you know, it, it, it's just people trying to find an answer to a problem, right? Yeah, I think there's so many different perspectives on this, depending mm. on which culture you're talking about. And I think one of the big problems in 
ethnic minority cultures is the stigma and the taboo mm, around yeah. mental health because it's not commonly talked about and it's the same in you know white western cultures until very recently as well but i think particularly a, a problem with ethnic minority communities and so that makes it very difficult i think for for patients to present and to to talk about their problems early at a stage where you know we can intervene early and provide mm. the right support early and I think it can make it difficult to access the right kind of help and, and treatment as well if someone's kind of unable to talk about their feelings in mm. an effective way or the clinician's unable to kind of assess exactly what's going on clearly so I think yeah language is a, is a huge problem and it this this happens in a number of different areas not just in mental health so I read recently that even the word for menopause and other words in women's health doesn't exist in in other languages so for example in Urdu, the word that's used actually means barren, which you know mm. has its own connotations and negative implications yeah. um, with regard to menopause. So, yeah, I think it's really important to be sensitive to that and be aware of that within yeah, healthcare. Yeah. You're a GP and a digital health researcher. So do you think tech is a solution to this problem? I think it has the potential to help with a number of issues, but I think that we also need to acknowledge that there is the potential for worsening inequalities as well mm. if if tech isn't developed and used in the right way. So what I mean is we know that health tech has a number of advantages in terms of, of patient care. So particularly when we talk about self-management, for example, in, in diabetes, which is one area that I've done a lot of research in, and I'm researching gestational diabetes at the moment, so talking to women from very diverse cultures. What's that? That's like diabetes in pregnancy, Diabetes right? during pregnancy, yeah. yeah. And women from African, Caribbean and South Asian populations mm. are at higher risk of both type 2 diabetes and diabetes in pregnancy. That's like diabetes you get as when you get pregnant yeah Yeah. so when you're pregnant your hormones change and that affects another one of your hormones called insulin and if you have diabetes in pregnancy you then become higher risk of having type 2 diabetes Uh, after pregnancy and later on in life as well and it can also adversely affect the child Mm. as well so it's a huge issue and one of the findings from our research has been that women would welcome a digital support so an app which helps with dietary and meal guidance, for example, because mm. it is the management, the mainstay of the management is about diet. So mm. eating the right quantities of rice, bread, potatoes mm. versus vegetables, fruit, that kind of thing. And in the NHS, we do a pretty bad job of giving mm. that advice because we don't have the time, the resource to provide really detailed individualised support to women and, and people who have diabetes in general. And so that's where digital solutions, I think, come in really handy because they can provide that individualised support where it's handheld, you can access it any time, mm. you can input your own data, it can respond to your individual data and provide you with really useful advice at any time. And you can connect with other people as well. There's so many advantages, but one of the risks is that People from ethnic minorities, particularly those who have less English or less education or less access to technology. Mm. So you, know, you need really simple things like Wi-Fi and a smartphone to be able to access any of this. And not mm. everyone has that for a start. And also, if you have trouble with language, you're going to mm. have real problems accessing and using any of this t- technology, too. 
So those are all things that we need to think about when we're developing and implementing this kind of technology is, is taking those people into account and designing the technology and, and delivering it in a way that makes it much more accessible. Mm. And that's already happening. We're seeing a lot of local councils and voluntary organisations giving people free access to Wi-Fi, sharing devices, making devices more accessible through libraries and a number of different schemes. So that's all happening. And in a way, that's quite a straightforward problem to solve if given enough resource. But I think the less straightforward problem is people's interest and motivation and trust Mm. in using digital technology as well. So we also know that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are a lot less trusting with regard to healthcare institutions in general, but particularly with regard to sharing data and sharing ethnicity data. Mm. And that's been a huge problem in terms of measuring and understanding inequalities, because if we don't have that data on ethnicity, we can't then look at the differences that we're seeing. So I think there's a number of other obstacles that we need to explore and address before we can really see the benefits of technology Mm. in the general population. Um, And that's what I'm really interested in finding out more about. And whether there is a solution or, you know, whether we need to be telling everyone to use digital technology or if we we just accept that everyone needs to have options and we need to have both non-digital and digital options and Mm. be able to understand what people's preferences are and cater to their needs i think that's a that's a really important idea that we need to accept as healthcare providers is that even if the policy priority might be to digitalize and even if it seems like it's going to save us money if our patients aren't necessarily on board with that or it it doesn't fit with their lifestyle or it doesn't they can't use it effectively for themselves and we need to accept that it's not going to work for everyone i think like when i think about like my mom's generation Mm. like she wouldn't like an app like she would want to go to the doctor who she knows on like a name basis and she would want to talk to the doctor but i i read something i think you mentioned it about how there's going to be like digital hubs so it kind of like it's not just an issue about race. It's like with everyone, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's a generational thing. Like having yeah. people who can access digital tech because that's where the world is going. Yeah. But there's going to be hubs to kind of bring that together. Yeah. So that's what I'm researching at the moment. So the evidence suggests that the groups of people who are more likely to be digitally excluded, so more likely to mm. be able to use and make the most of digital technology, are people who are older. And we will see this with our own families mm. and grandparents, um, people who have less education, less income and people who have less English. So I'm really interested in, in, in what we do about that. So at the moment, I'm doing a research project working with 100 percent digital leads who are a council funded organisation working across leads to deliver digital inclusion programmes. So programmes that give people access skills and address this issue around motivation, interest, Mm. etc. And they specifically have set up a network of digital health hubs, which GPs and other healthcare providers can refer patients to, Mm. to access support from staff and volunteers who work within local voluntary organisations. So these are places that are set up in community centres, places where people tend to go for support for other things Mm. like benefits and food banks, that kind of thing anyway. So I'm looking at how these digital health hubs work, 
what are the sort of vital ingredients that they provide that help people to access healthcare and improve their health? Mm. How could they be improved? How could they be scaled up? How could we do this, you know, across the country, potentially, if it's a potential solution to the problem? And it's, yeah, we've just started doing the research, but it's been really interesting so far. And one of the things that's come up so far, it's very early days, is that people, you can't make people go from being digitally excluded to using digital health technology Mm. in one step. You need to bring them on gradually and you need to get people online generally first. Mm. So using technology that may have nothing to do with healthcare first that interests them. And once they're on board digitally, then you can talk to them about all these other things that digital can provide them, whether that's healthcare or access to benefits, job applications, Mm. education and training, all those other things. We know there's so many benefits. So there are some really vital key ingredients there that we're going to be identifying and highlighting and writing about. So hopefully you'll hear more about that next year. I guess at the moment it's just a hub in Leeds. Like, is it functional? There's there's multiple. There's a network in South Leeds, which is the most deprived area of Leeds. And and there's a few of them that have been set up so far, but the plan is to to upscale and, Mm. and, and... broaden that program out further across Leeds. I think it sounds like an amazing program. I mean, yeah, if I think about the people in my family and stuff, like they would seriously benefit from something like that. Yeah, I think it's a really, really nice solution, but Mm. it requires investment and staff and Mm. people's time sustained over a period of time as well. So it really, it it requires buy-in, not just from national government, but also from local government as well to set up their own programmes locally. And we're seeing that happen. I mean, national government have been talking about digital exclusion since COVID. It's been such a priority since then. And a number of local governments have have tried to set up schemes like this. So we know that parts of London, Newham, for example, have, have done some great work on digital inclusion. And I've worked with digital health hubs there. Manchester are also really interested in this topic and have set up or are setting up digital health hubs there as well. So it's slowly happening in pockets of different areas across the country but we we want to see this happen nationally which should be sort of just a part of, of like the offer when it comes to healthcare it's mm. if we're going to move healthcare towards being digitized then we need to be offering people the support to be able to access that as well definitely i don't think trust and, and or mistrust is specifically a ethnic minority thing it's not, but it's but been, it is, it's yeah. particularly bad in ethnic minority communities. And we know that from things. So I just did a study on COVID vaccine hesitancy, for mm. example, and trust in government and healthcare institutions was such a big problem with the COVID vaccine mm. and a reason why people from ethnic minorities didn't want to take it. And so that kind of highlighted that whole issue. And one of the things that people told me when I was just talking about the vaccine was... When, people, when you were vaccinated, you were asked your ethnicity for data collection purposes. Mm. And a number of my participants said, well, we, why are you asking me about my ethnicity? Why do you need that data? I'm not going to give you that data. I never give anyone my ethnicity mm. data. There's just this unwillingness to share it. And I think there's a mistrust in why the data is collected, where it goes. But it's like I'm, I might be penalised for it. And that's why yeah. some people don't want to share their data. Yeah. And that all comes from historic injustice historic trauma historic racism that all comes from things that have happened in the past where black and ethnic minority people have been treated differently 
So it's it's rooted in those systems and, and that inequality. And so I think we need to acknowledge that in a number of different areas, including data. And data is so important because if we don't have good data, we can't measure anything. We don't know where we are. We can't assess where we're at, where the inequalities are and what we need to do about them. That's our starting point for maybe being able to do anything else. So it's a really important issue. Mm. There's a lot of reservations about giving your data away. And I guess with something like an app, that's, that would come into play. I remember reading stuff about the NHS selling their data. and So we, we're really happy to use like Instagram and mm. TikTok and whatever, where you have to input your data and it's collecting data <laughs> on you all the time because it's watching what you're accessing and the, the algorithms are providing you with content based on what you're accessing. And we're totally fine with that. But then when it comes to healthcare, people become a lot more, they do become a lot more twitchy about it. And I think that like health, the health tech industry kind of has to learn from that, not in terms of we should be more like Facebook and just like trick people into giving us data. But like, why is it that people are so okay with using apps for one thing, but not for health? Like, mm. I think we need to understand that a bit more and understand. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's some differences there in the way that people use technology. Yeah, it's true, because, like, even on Instagram, they ask me health-related questions. I'm like, yeah, take it. Yeah. Uh, but then, but I, then if you had, if the NHS app was asking you all those questions, would you still be fine with Oh, yeah, it? yeah. I, I okay. went on the NHS app and I, I gave everything away. Whereas there are people who would be fine with doing that on Instagram, but then yeah, if yeah, an yeah. NHS app asked them to do it, they'd be like, well, why do you want to know that? See, I'm off the Even belief... date of birth, some people don't want to share Oh, uh, yeah, I, I know, because, like, I was at the library the other day. It's literally the library. I feel like it's the <laughs> safest place ever. And there was an uh, there was a lady having an argument with a librarian. And I was like, why are you having an argument with a librarian? About how they have her date of birth in yeah. the register. And he was like, we kind of need it because like there's some 18-related content and we can't let you take that out and all of that stuff. And so we're having your date of birth mitigates yeah. that kind of thing. And then she was like, no, 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 all of that stuff, the argument about it. And then he was like, I can just take it off. But it means that every time you take out, you know, sensitive content i have to check your id and stuff she's like yeah <laughs> and i was like but people have like such a i don't know yeah volatile people reaction have to an it. aversion to sharing yeah. personal data with particular organizations i feel like i feel like social media gets away with it somehow where it just like makes you feel like it's okay to share your data but, and people do it like but, the library is part of the council and the council has your data yeah 100%. exactly exactly like you're yeah. on the on the electoral roll yeah. you get posted all the time so yeah is yeah it didn't make sense to me i was like yeah, yeah I, it doesn't make sense yeah but i think we need to understand it better shaver if you had all the power in england what would you do with that power how would you solve this issue um yeah that's a big question yeah a lot of power as well yeah i think <laughs> I mean, I already kind of do this, but I I would put more emphasis and more focus on the people who are most disadvantaged. So people who mm. are in the most difficult situations socioeconomically in terms of the health. We know the two are linked in terms of racism. All three of those things are linked. So I, I would put more resource and target my policy towards improving the lives of those people. Because I think if we can do that... I mean, not only are we going to improve life expectancy, not only are we going to improve the health of those people, we'll improve the workforce, we'll improve the burden on the health system, we'll improve 
you know the economic growth of the country mm. and people will be happier and there will be more equality and that's that i think is is really really important in terms of you know where we want our society to be headed and you know how we want the next generation to experience things as well and 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 you know intergen we know that disadvantage is inherited across generations and if we want to improve the lives of future generations we need to start by improving the lives of our current population mm. i feel like with something like this especially with the issue of race it's like you feel like you're a small fish in a big pond so what would you say to someone who's interested in this field because i feel like even if we are small fish you're doing a lot of great work to make a big ripple yeah you're right you can often feel like a small fish in a big pond when you're dealing with you know these challenges are huge social health challenges but i think it's also really rewarding work it's really if you're someone like me who's very kind of values led in terms mm. of what you do and you get your satisfaction and your enjoyment and your joy from doing <laughs> things that sit close to your values and working with communities that you really care about on issues that you really care about it's it's such fulfilling work and i also think you know just doing your bit is really important so i've used this analogy before of like you might not be able to build the entire house but if you can put one brick in the wall you've contributed to building that Mm. house and everyone needs to put their bricks in if we're all going to build the house and I think that's that's a really important analogy to think about with this issue because because it's not just going to take one person to change Mm. things it takes everyone doing their bit and it's everyone's problem and I think that's another way of looking at it as well I think that's also a good way to end things one brick at a time yes absolutely Um, like we can make change definitely so thank you for speaking to us today Shoba thank you Health in a Handbasket is produced by UCL's Institute of Healthcare Engineering and edited by Keris Bradley the Institute of Healthcare Engineering brings together leading researchers to develop the tools and devices that will make your life better we're using this podcast to share all the amazing work taking place you can learn more by searching UCL Health in a Handbasket or following the link in the show notes. So share with your friends and family if you found this interesting. We're available everywhere, especially where you just listen to us.